welcome to Life Over Pain, a podcast where people with chronic pain and traumatic brain injury share their stories of life, value, and resilience. I'm Patty Freeman Evans, and these stories help me reframe my thinking and to approach my day from a point of view I would never have thought of before. I find the honesty with which these people tell their stories to be inspiring, courageous, and full of hope. I hope you do too. A six-year-old boy has a stroke, and then another one. When he's eight, doctors take out one-third of his brain. Everyone tells him he's a very lucky boy. It's a hard thing to understand at eight years old with only two-thirds of your brain left. His family stays with him around the clock and tell him that they love him. Doctors say that he probably won't be able to walk or talk or use his arm again. But he does. Scott Olson is now in his 50s and has led a life full of challenges that most people would find hard to fathom. Yet he not only survives, he triumphs most of the time. Like when he was able to ride a bike again for the first time after his surgery. He was disabled a bit, yes. But riding a bike meant freedom. Scott is an incredibly positive and energetic person with a deep creative streak. In fact, he has shared one of his songs with us. You'll hear it at the end of his story. And as he looks back now at how he does it, he points to how he sees that there is always someone willing to help and that the value of the love and support he's always gotten from family and friends can't be measured. Today, we're talking to Scott Olson. Scott has a lifelong journey of dealing with a brain injury and pain that he has so graciously agreed to tell us in only a style that Scott can tell us. So welcome, Scott, and thank you so much for agreeing to tell your story. Thanks, Patty. It's a pleasure to be with you. Why don't we start early in your life? You had brain surgery when you were mm -hmm. just a little kid. Yeah, I had a, uh, an arteriovenous malformation that was discovered when I was about eight. The first two indicators were strokes that I had, one at six years old, although we didn't know it was a stroke, and then one at seven years old, which we weren't quite sure was a stroke, but uh, the symptoms were the same as the first, and uh, it prompted my mother to get me to the doctor. And then after a series of tests, they did determine that, in fact, it was an AVM. So wow. Did, pretty devastating. Pretty devastating. Yeah, seriously, as an eight-year-old, did you have any idea sort of what was going on? I had no idea whatsoever. I was, all I knew was that uh, I would get really bad headaches. Uh, they didn't seem like normal headaches like most people got. And uh, when I would get them, my right side, my, the right side of my body would more or less shut down. Severe pins and needles, severe lack of motion and movement, and we couldn't figure out what it was. And it was just a lack of blood flow getting through that uh, part of the brain. So when they finally did discover the tumor and they had to go in and take it out, they uh, removed about 30% of the uh, left hemisphere of my brain. That's a lot of the brain. And it explains a lot of because of how I am. No, I'm teasing. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> now it's all revealed. Yes, okay. Yes, exactly. Um, so you were eight years old, but and so how yeah. old are you now? I'm 53 now. So this was now. back in, uh, yeah, I, the surgery was in uh, March of 1975. So they know a lot more now than they... Way more, way more, yeah. As a matter of fact, um, I just recently found out within the last year that it was an arteriovenous malformation. I was always told that it was a brain tumor. And not that an AVM isn't a brain tumor, but 
you know, you just kind of think brain tumor, and I thought an automatic uh, blockage and and big, huge, wilting tumor, which it kind of is, except the AVM in my case was more, they said it was more about the veins that were all being clogged. There was a blockage in there, but uh, I, I don't know. I, that, it didn't, it wasn't kind of the traditional tumor, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. At least that's what I've come to understand from my, my uh, current neurologist. Um, and his explanation was, you know, they didn't, they didn't have quite the, uh, understanding, I think is how he put it, of certainly the point you made of, of what they know now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, kind of interesting, you know, 50 years later, or almost 50 years later to find out that it wasn't really what you thought it was, it was this. But the damage was done nonetheless. Right. It's such a broad brush kind of, oh, you had it. So, since you were eight years old, what what were people telling you then that was helpful for you at least to deal? See, since they were only giving you you know broad brush statements, but what was helpful to you to help you get through it, at least in the early stages? Yeah, you know, uh, the the one thing that I heard the most was how lucky I was to be alive, which I. It it didn't seem that way to me at the time, you know, being eight years old. And I was partially paralyzed after the surgery. Well, not partially. I was pretty much fully paralyzed after the surgery for a couple months or so. And it wasn't until they started getting some physical therapy going that I started regaining some use. But all I kept hearing was, you are a lucky boy. You are lucky, lucky, lucky. And I, I wish I could have seen it for what it was. But at the time when you're eight years old and... And although that's a very short lifespan, if you will, at that point of, in somebody's life, uh, the things that I was used to doing prior to the surgery just weren't there anymore. So I didn't see myself as lucky. Um, I do yeah. now. I do now. Right. Right. In hindsight of, you know, 40 years. Yeah. But, sure. But then, what do you think would have been helpful in hindsight? Oh, gosh. You know, hard to answer that question really because I don't know. I, I, because I, I'm using I'm using context today to apply it sure. back in 1975. I certainly do understand how lucky I am now. So I, I don't know if there was anything that could have helped soften that blow a little bit because I was dealing with such new things like exclusion. Certainly the disability, trying to uh, learn things over again, learning how to write, use my left hand, and so I was right-handed, and then after the surgery, all my right side more or less went away. I mean, I still have, I can move it and things like that, but I have very limited movement. Yeah, you know, it's tough. It was tough. I didn't, I did not see a positive side of it, even being alive. That that just did not resonate with me. Because my my feeling at the time was, you know, why would... Uh, one of the last visits I had in the hospital before my surgery was a visit from a priest and two nuns. And they kept telling me how lucky I was. And I just couldn't see it that way. And I kept trying to understand why would a God that is so loving do this to a young boy? It just did not resonate with me. And so I I never saw the fortunate side of this whole thing. That's yeah. a really hard intellectual faith kind of question, right? Like, yeah, exactly, you know, especially for an eight-year-old. Eight yeah, who who, has, who just had a third of his brain removed, has no understanding. I really didn't have any kind of religious basis in my life at that point. You know, I've been, I had been, what do they call that? I was, uh, I almost said cremated. Uh, <laughs> I was, uh, not cremated. I'm sorry. I can't think of the word right now. That that's how religious we were when I was a boy. I can't even think of what it was. Where they, you know, the the priest comes in and uh, communion. I had a communion. I'm pretty. Yeah, I I did all that when I was. But I was very young, and I just it wasn't a, a normal thing in our lives. So I had no clue as to any of the religious side of this or how to buy into faith and 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 kind of help that as or use that as a motivator. It just yeah. it wasn't there. Wasn't there? Do you have any kids now? No, we have no children. Okay. Were you the only kid in the hospital? Were there other kids who were dealing with any kind of recovery issues or in the like in the rehab and things like that? 
Yeah, we, I was in the, the pediatrics ward, and there were other kids that certainly had, uh, I don't know if I would say more elaborate or as elaborate problems going on. I don't remember anybody that had anything like I had uh, in the ward. Uh, there were probably, mm-hmm. I, think of, I don't know, maybe seven or eight of us, and it was exclusively a pediatrics ward. But, no, nobody that was uh, in the ward at the time that I was had anything like what I was right. going through. So at least at least you weren't totally alone. No, 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 I wasn't yeah, alone at yeah, all. Not yeah, at all. Yeah. I had other kids, and certainly, of course, the family was all over it, and I always had visitors. Yeah. My mom and dad, uh, my, my father at the time, my folks have, have divorced since then. But, yeah. uh, you know, I had, uh, I, I think my mom would come uh, from... Six in the e six in the morning until six at night, and then my dad would come from six at night till six in the morning, especially in the early days, uh, just before surgery and right after, because I was in intensive care for a couple of weeks after the surgery. Yeah. So they always make sure, and then of course you know family, 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 steady flow of family. Yeah, well, so that's that's a huge support. It was yeah, yeah beyond. I, I don't know what I would have done without it. I probably would have yeah. gone crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. And so that I imagine was a huge, um, sort of motivator for you, even though you didn't understand what was really going on and you didn't mm-hmm. quite feel lucky. At least you had that. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so if you were like to, so today, you know, sort of to, if somebody came to you and said, Holly, moly, my eight-year-old is in the hospital with, you know, this crazy brain thing, it, it, could, would you be able to, you know, help them to say, you know, well, here are some things that I think would be helpful? Yeah, I, I, that might be a, I think that might be kind of hard. I mean, how do you tell yeah. somebody your eight-year-old is going to be okay? I mean, when when it's really yeah. a, a, a huge unknown. And for my folks, yeah. and my mom especially, my mom and dad, my mom was really the rock in the whole thing, and she had to be because, yeah. you know, we didn't have a whole lot of support from dad at the time. Yeah. And she just, you know, all I, all, what I distinctly remember was, how much love was was adorned on me. You know, we love you, we love you, because I think they thought I was going to die. They didn't think I was going to make it. So I mm-hmm. think their their state of mind was just to try and, and give me that, that positive um, affirmation, if you will. Yeah. If I had to tell somebody today, what would you do? Gosh, that's a tough one. Um, I, I, I'm... From what I understand, I'm a very, very fortunate person to come out of this type of surgery the way I did. You know, they told me I wasn't going to be able to walk again, probably not going to be able to talk again, paralyzed on the right side for the rest of my life, maybe looking at 24-7 care, uh, school, forget school. He's probably not going to ever go back to any traditional schooling anyway. And so, you know, I hate to use the four-letter word, but hope was really all we had because we just didn't know how any of this was going to unfold. And, you know, I, I blew the doctors away, I'm happy to say. they Every time I had to go for a follow-up or for something else that may have been related uh, to the surgery, none of the doctors could believe it. And even to this day, I mean, I'm going to the doctor to have a, a little eye procedure, and he started questioning me about my medical history. And when I told him, he actually shook my hand. He goes, you're amazing. He goes, that that just doesn't happen. So I, I'm a lucky guy, and I would just say, you know, you do all you can, whatever that means, pray, Go to God, go to Buddha, go to Allah, whoever it is that you feel you need to pray to, pray to that, that deity and, and just keep hope. It's really all we have at, at, at that yeah. particular moment. You know, once yeah. I pulled out, we started seeing what was going on. And even the, the even when, when the progress was great, I didn't see it because all I knew was that I, now I was, I was handicapped. You know, I had to right. deal with all this stuff at, at eight years old. How, how in the heck do you deal with that? You know, yeah. at eight, it's hard to understand anybody that's telling you, you know, it's not going to be like this forever. Well, I don't know. At eight years old, a year is forever. So, you know, seeing anything down the line, you know, at, at 25, 30, 40, 50, what have you, just wasn't yeah. there for me. It yeah. wasn't. This is really 
wonderful because what I'm hearing is, even though you know you're getting some pretty scary news, you're not the only kid in the hospital. Twenty four seven family around you, right. and lots and lots of visitors who are telling you how loved you are. Sure, which absolutely. Is, and they would sneak in food, which was great because I was so burnt out on hospital food. So yes. Yeah. I mean that is the that is the measure of a remarkable family in my eyes. They're willing to take the risk to sneak in a big mat so I don't have to deal with that bland hospital food. I just had to get that in. I want to thank them all for supporting my habits. That's lovely. That's great. I love it. The Big Mac caper. Oh yes. Yes. My grandma was a uh she was quite the hamburger, I have to say. <laughs> Your grandmother, the Hambler. <laughs> oh, she was great. <laughs> That's great. I love it. And that that sort of breeds hope. I feel like. Yeah. I don't. I don't know that I saw it that way, but it certainly was. Uh, I, it, looking back now, yes, uh, I can. I could. I would certainly say that it, it bred hope, and and maybe subconsciously even knowing that I wasn't going through this alone, and that. After, you know, the shock of the whole ordeal, as I started living life, they would be there for me. And they were. I think that's a huge thing, right? Because if you ever felt like you were really alone or somebody wasn't going to, you know, have your back, it would have made things much harder. It certainly would. And yeah, they, I mean, my life, once, once the first year out of surgery kicked in, I was treated just like any other kid for the most part. And and I think that helped a lot, too. I had to realize my own limitations. I had people tell me I could do whatever I wanted, but I had to prove it to myself. And eventually I did, for the most part. Again, I finally started coming to the realization that there are just things I can't do, you know, because from a physical standpoint. And so, yeah, it was it was a little... A little hard getting to that point, but eventually I did, and that was certainly because of the family's inspiration. Yes, their sort of foundation to let you experiment. Yes. And to fail and to succeed and to fail and to succeed. Exactly, and I did a lot of that. And you did a lot of that. And what are some examples? Yeah, one of the biggest things that I still to this day hold as one of my biggest achievements was getting on a bicycle again. You know, after the surgery, my balance was bad. It was way off. And it was probably about a year and a half, as I recall, after surgery, after PT, after going through my first year back in school as a a regular student. I didn't miss any school, uh, surprisingly. But getting on that bike and proving to myself that I could do it, oh, my God. I, I can't even tell you the excitement I felt that day. It was very comforting to know that I could still do that. It didn't mean that I could do everything I wanted to uh, at a physical level, but I think it was just enough confidence to at least allow me uh, the the courage, if you will, to try other things that I thought I wouldn't be able to do. I wonder if, you know, there was a certain sense of freedom because you had your own mode of transportation. Um, Right. Absolutely. Oh, and back then, I mean, you know, back this is back in the 70s. I mean, you know, there weren't too many people taking buses. We were able to go around, you know, pretty much scot-free, to use a term, uh, you know, on our bicycles. And then I had friends that we, we'd jump on our bikes and, and go. We'd be gone, you know. Uh, back then, it was, you know, come home when the streetlights come on. So uh, we, we certainly did a lot of that. And it, so the freedom was definitely there. So did your friends embrace you in that first year after you got back and later? Yes, actually they did. Once I got home from the hospital, which would have been about April, beginning middle of April 1975, a lot of my friends from the neighborhood, they all came and saw me, were all there to support me, if you will. I mean, there really wasn't a lot they could do other than just to be there if if I needed something. But, you know, a lot of it for me at that point was uh, physical recovery and then getting back into school at a regular level. So I didn't see a lot of them throughout the summer. But the friends from the neighborhood, like I said, were were all there. Once I got back into school, I had a little bit of a a time there. 
uh, you know, kids are cruel. And so I, I was teased uh, a good chunk. <laughs> um, I didn't like it. And I was kind of a small kid. I don't, I'm not big in stature. I'm only about 5'4 now as a 53-year-old man, which is devastating in itself. But I'll save that for another day. But, uh, you know, I got picked on a lot. And back then I felt, yeah, you're going to make fun of me. I'm going to come and get you. And it just didn't quite work out that way. So I found myself being pinned down a lot by, by guys that were a little bit older than me who had decided to make fun of me but knew that they could just push me down and sit on me and that would be the end of it. So a little rough. That sounds, it sounds very rough, you know, particularly in hindsight, too, now that bullying is such a thing, right? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. How did you deal with that, particularly because you also have the lens of, you know, the disabilities that you're dealing with? A lot of crying, a lot of going home and asking my mom why it happened to me. Why did God let this happen to me? This isn't fair. I didn't, the dealing was more of just trying to wrap my head around the inequity, what I perceived as the inequity of the whole thing. And again, it was, you know, mom just giving me a hug and, Stroking my hair and saying, you know what, it's, it's, you're gonna be okay, you're alive, you're, you know, just real simple basic concepts that you should probably always keep in mind no matter what you're going through. That's where she was. We love you, we'll never let you suffer, we'll never let you fall, kids are gonna be cruel. Tell, you know, and the, the remedy was pretty much the same as any parent I think would, would do, at least back then, and that's go to the higher-ups and talk to them. And that happened on a, a couple different occasions. Mm. But, you know, a bully is going to be a bully. So you just kind of mm. deal with it. That's what I had to do. I, I, I didn't have anybody. I, I think there was only once or twice in my school career that I actually had somebody step up and defend me because they knew of my condition. And, and and I'll remember him for the rest of my life. He was always a, a real good guy. And he wasn't much bigger than me, but he was tough. And he would he got right in their faces and, hey, you don't pick on him. So kind of nice in that regard. Yeah, that's that's lovely, right? You yeah. had a, yeah. a champion. That, that's wonderful. And Absolutely. backed up by the simple, simple but clear and loving foundational messages from your mom and, and your stepdad. So, yeah. And so what did those do for you, like, as you're thinking inside? So you have the, there's this external perception of you, like, oh, there's this, this kid who's walking around the halls, and I'm going to bully him. And then, then, but internally, you're there. How, how, what are you thinking in, inside? Oh, gosh. You know, I dealt with a lot of fear because I was just so uncertain of myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't really have much of the. My, I wrapped up my identity in my disability as a young boy. You know, I wasn't because prior to that, I was a. I mean, I was fast. I could run. I was very athletic. Even for my short stature, I was. There was nobody in in elementary school that could beat me except one sixth grader, and I was in third grade at the time before I was pulled out for my surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I mean, I saw myself that way. So coming out of surgery and going back into the school situation, that that messed with my head a little bit, you know, because now I'm not athletic anymore and mm-hmm. I don't have the speed or the dexterity or uh, no agility, what have you. So, uh, yeah, it, it was a little tough. But my interest turned to other things as I got older and I got into more of the theater side of things, especially the technical part, theater, lighting, and sound. And so as I got older and I got into those things, I was with people that were into the same thing and, you know, developed really strong relationships with them. The bullies didn't stop. I had a bully in in, uh, high school that was constantly trying to pick on me. And, uh, you know, that came to a head one day with with another one of my angels who, uh, you know, at the time was one of my best friends ever. And same thing. He he came up and told this guy, you you leave him alone, man, or you're going to have to deal with me. You know, there's there's always somebody that's willing to help, and I think if if people can shut down their their own ugliness that they kind of throw their own way, and 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 see what other people are willing to invest in you, I think that could really make a big difference. But you know, as a young guy, you don't see that kind of stuff. So, and, and I had a couple people, and especially the second person that I'm referring to, he was he was incredible. He really was. He was a great guy. 
up until, you know, we got, we grew up and, and kind of drifted apart. But he really was a, a nice guy to me, and he did not see a disability. He just saw me and was willing to be my friend, and I, I really appreciated that. Yeah. Sounds like a wonderful, kind, and, you know, a guy who steps up and does the right thing, even in the face of potential harm. Absolutely. Sense of, you know, a guy with real character, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And still to this day, I still see him periodically, and he's still just the way I remember him back in high school and, and, um, you know, still stepping up to do the right thing. So, uh, yeah. I, I owe a lot to him, just from that perspective, certainly. That's great, you know, for you to have those examples for for you, not only to protect you, but for you also to learn from and emulate to some degree in your life. Yeah, and actually reflect upon because, you know, I mean, still at this, I think there were things that, well, I don't think, I know there were things that, affected me in negative ways when I was a kid. And so at least I can look back and think, okay, well, it wasn't all bad. You know, there weren't, there, not everybody was out to get me. And and, and I, I don't mean to make it sound so huge. I, I don't, maybe that's being a little disingenuous, but it felt like that to me. And so when I have somebody I can reach back to and, and say, yeah, you know, this guy helped me. He was, he was always there for me, what have you. That, that certainly serves as a, a nice little, chunk of solace for me that's a great point so have you always had that perspective or did did you have to sort of work to get it no i've no i didn't ha- always have that uh i do have to work at it and and even now as i'm in my 50s because i deal with uh i still deal with issues from it you know there were things let me back up a little bit about a year after my surgery and i got home from the hospital and everything a uh, neighbor that was about five years older than me, so he that would have made him about 15 or 16, somewhere in that neighborhood, started torturing and molesting me. Oh, my and God. He uh, started my battle with marijuana when I was nine. Started, he would get me uh, exceedingly high, and then he would take me and molest me or torture me and laugh about it. You know, I remember the, the day he would sit on my chest and, and pin me down, and I couldn't move. I had, you know, no strength whatsoever, and he he did some awful things. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. Uh, so um, I didn't know how to develop kind of a healthy attitude to combat that kind of stuff because it was it was just kept going. And you, you were saying that no... You know, you didn't always have that perspective. It took you a while to get there. I mean, this, I think, as an example of how, you know, you needed to you needed to get there. And, uh, yeah, no, I didn't always have that perspective. It's there now, um, and it helps me to, you know, there's good people. There are good people that, that are always willing to help. And, you know, I wish I could have seen that when I was a young boy. I couldn't. couldn't see it. It was very hard, but... At this age, when I look back, yes, there were definitely people in my life at that point that were willing to to be an advocate, to be a, to be a, an angel, if you will, try and keep me looking in the right direction, you know, and, and that was hard for me to do. So I see it more now than I did back then, that's for sure. Yeah, with age and hindsight, I imagine. Absolutely. And, you know, I guess I would look at myself and I sort of see that too. And it's easier for me to also ask for, for help, right. um, wh- which I would not have done. As a, sure. As or even just kid. seek it out. I mean, I'm willing to actually seek it out now, you know, which I, I didn't do before. You know, I, I mean, I've gone to talk to a couple of counselors. But uh, even then, I, I, you know, and this is probably back in my early 20s, late teens, early 20s. And uh, if you if you can't see the whole thing that you're experiencing, the whole picture, which I couldn't, because I wasn't completely being honest with myself at times about things that happened. You know, I I didn't get all the counseling that I probably could have. 
and to nowadays I'm because I've come to understand that there is another element that should have been addressed when I was going through this counseling that wasn't. That being the counseling not just from a psychologist but a neuropsychologist so they could explain to me why I may have acted in certain ways because of the brain trauma. And I'd like to get that now, to be honest with you, but I have a hard time finding a, <laughs> a neuropsychologist in my uh, in my network <laughs> that my insurance will pay for. So. <laughs> oh, geez. Oh, it's such a sad state of affairs that treatment is predicated on. You know, it, it, it really is. It really is. I mean, well, I, I, I should, I, I'm not completely bad-mouthing my insurance. I do have some pretty decent insurance, but it's just the neuropsychologist. There are none within my network, and maybe that's just yeah. because it's such a, you know, specialized field. But, uh, you know, I, I keep chugging, uh, just pushing on, and, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> it's life. Life sometimes. You know, nobody should um, not have care if we can find it. Um, yeah, I agree with that. And especially yeah. now, for me, because I'm getting so much older, and, you know, as as anybody who, who uh, grows, <laughs> you know, your, your thinking starts to change. Um, and I would certainly like to have some answers as to why, you know, there are certain things that I did when I was younger, especially, you know. Um, one of the – I did go and see a counselor, and this counselor is the one that said – you need to see a neuropsychologist. Um, and he started explaining how, like I said, you know, brain trauma, brain injury, brain surgery, removal of, of live brain tissue can affect the way that we deal with certain things in our lives. That never clicked for me. That never even was a was a consideration, to be honest with you. I just thought, you know, I, I just need counseling. I, I want to go to a counselor. And when he opened this, he opened, he opened this door and all of a sudden I thought, oh my God, this could explain so much. And, yeah. uh, yeah, and, and so unfortunately I, I couldn't get appointments with these neuropsychs, but, uh, it gave me, it put me on the path to trying to find somebody that might be able to give me some, some, uh, some better answers as to why some of the things I did over the years happened. Did you not? Yeah. I think uh, it's really true. You know, I, lucky that, you know, living in New York, there's a giant pool of the medical community is huge. And sure. I went to a group that was led mm-hmm. by neuropsychologists. And it was an emotional regulation group. Okay. And w- with the foundation of cognitive behavioral psychology, based on sort of the neuropsychology around mm-hmm. it. And it really gave a good perspective of helping us understand, well, you know, you have a brain injury and it's hard for people with brain injury to regulate their emotions. And and it just, even just that simple statement. And that is so true. And, and for me especially, and I couldn't figure this out um, for the longest time until I saw a commercial for, what do they call that, uh, pseudo-bulbar effect? Which is, I think, where they say, you know, you could laugh and cry at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was never even anything I, I had heard about. But there were, uh, since I was almost a kid, I can remember laughing and crying at the same time. Very moved by certain music uh, or messages of somebody really compels me. And I could laugh and cry, and I still do it to this day, almost always. And, uh, you know, I used to think, wow, I'm just an emotional guy. But then it, <laughs> you know, put in my head, well, maybe there is something to this Deuter-Bulbar effect in my brain injury and why I react the way that I do. I'm not, a, look, I, I don't like, you know, we see a lot of commercials nowadays about take a pill for this. You can take a pill for this. You can take a pill for this. And I am anti-pill as much as I can be because I don't think they always help or, you know, they always have some kind of weird disclaimer like, you know, if you're suffering from depression, taking this pill could cause depression. Well, that seems kind of counterintuitive to me. Mm-hmm. But so I'm I'm not into taking a pill just because they say it might help. I would much rather understand why I am the way that I am. Then if I need a pill, perhaps we can broach that. But uh, it's just, it's interesting now 
you know, what I'm hearing about some of this stuff that I never contemplated even 15, 20 years ago. You know, wow, so brand injury could actually affect your, your feelings. Who would have thought? Not me. And I have brain injury, so. And there's so many things that I don't think of, mm -hmm. partially because I have a brain injury. Sure. And, you know, my brain just isn't isn't working the way it, it might have or doesn't before. And right. And there's so many reasons for that. So being able to ask uh, a neuropsychologist, somebody who studies this particularly, is really a, a helpful thing. And, you know, and sometimes they have to say, we don't know, because mm -hmm. there's so much they don't know about the brain still. Sure. But there's a lot of things they, they have learned. And, um, and they, you know, they might know that something happens, but they don't know necessarily exactly why. It, you know, right. sort of like they, they've learned a lot about pain, which, you know, they, they started to be able to track where, where pain <clears throat> is triggers in the brain. Right. And, it's, and it's so diverse with it, where it triggers in the brain, which is one of the reasons why nobody feels pain the same way. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't tell them what to do about it exactly. So, it's, exactly. you know, there's a lot to do. But it's still, it's so grounding to just sort of understand some of the why behind things. It, it would be amazing to understand some of the why. And it's funny, my wife and I sometimes will we'll be having a conversation. She'll get stuck on the, well, why is this happening? Why is this happening? And I'll take the position of, well, the why is unimportant. We need to just fix it. So let's not get stuck on the why. In this situation, I am totally about the why. I want to understand. I want a better understanding of why I am the way I am. What You know, when they took out that 30% of my brain, what did they remove? And, yeah, and how did my brain recover? What You know, what centers uh, are, are completely gone from my brain that make me act this particular way or where it, it affects my, my impulse control or I'm a pretty creative person. I write music and poetry and, and essays and things like that. I don't know that I would have been like that, you know, sans the, the brain tumor, but you know, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 it would be nice to, to have a better understanding of some of this, certainly. You can't know. And do you have the medical records from back then? I do, but, you know, I mean, back in the 70s, the medical records weren't anything like they are now. When I actually got a hold of them, finally, I started going through them. And I had been going to the same doctor since I was about, oh, I don't know, four or five, certainly prior to anything they knew about the brain tumor. And then uh, beyond the brain tumor, I actually worked for the medical group that one of my doctors was uh, owner of. So I have charts that go from about the time, like I said, four or five all the way up to about 23. And just the difference in the, the medical record keeping aspect of the whole thing is different. I looked at some of those records from 1973, 72 or 73, and they're basically just handwritten notes. Well, quick jots. I mean, they, it was nothing, you know, the, the form they used didn't even have it wasn't even a template with, with all the questions that they need to get or, you know, get answered. It was basically my name, the date, the nurse's information, like my blood pressure and temperature, and then a few scribbles from the doctor. And that was about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, going through some of those things weren't exactly helpful. Um, and even the notes on the surgery, they're very... I mean, they're just cut to the chase. There's no, and I guess there wouldn't be, but there's no speculation or, or the doctor's theories or anything. It's just, we, this is what he had, this is what we did, and that was it. There's not even a mm -hmm. prognosis or anything on there. I didn't get mm -hmm. any of that. So all, all the prognosis information regarding my surgery was pretty much delivered from the doctor to my mom, either while yeah. I was in yeah. surgery or in the recovery phases. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, at least yeah, if, they, if they say what areas of the brain they took out, then yes. somebody can tell you, you know, what those areas do in more detail now than they would have then. So that could be Absolutely. Useful. Maybe a bit yeah. scary, too, but, yes, definitely useful. Yes. Well, and <laughs> because the brain is so resilient that what you, you would be a actually really cool case to 
see, okay, they took out that part of your brain, but in right. fact, your do your brain has rewired itself to be able to function absolutely in, in, in ways that it shouldn't because that part of your brain is gone. I mean, I don't know that it can do exactly that, but you you get the point. Well, and, I, and that was one of the things that they. I, I remember my neurosurgeon, who was one of the best in in the area at the time, it said. Essentially what you just said, you know, the brain will, will rewire itself to the extent that it can. And if I recall, he was quite positive about it because of my age, because, you know, my brain was still developing. So he felt that a lot of the things that I might lose from the center that was cut out would regenerate, if you will, or, or rewire, get rewired or whatever the brain does to kind of help me in, in those regards. And it did to a great degree. I mean, I wasn't supposed to be able to, to speak, more or less. And here I am ha- doing an interview with you. I wasn't mm-hmm. supposed to be able to walk, and I was able to walk into my office here and do it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, there's certainly no denying that the brain is an amazing thing, and it could probably take care of <laughs> itself, more or less, you know, if, yeah. we, if we let it go. You're doing, yeah, I know, you're doing, you're doing amazingly well, which is another good point that, you know, it keeps kind of healing itself even today, even a long time after you had the surgery. And so speaking of today, what, what are you up to now? Well, you know, I, I, after the brain surgery, uh, gosh, since your podcast is life over pain, I guess we should talk some more about the pain. Uh, (laughs) Um, So I was uh, right out of the hospital. I, I didn't miss any school. They pulled me out. Well, I shouldn't say that. They pulled me out of third grade at, at the Christmas break, so December-ish. And then I missed the rest of that school year, went in and had my surgery. But then during the summer break, I had a tutor come in. And she was there, like I said, throughout summer. And she passed me to go right on into fourth grade. Once I got into fourth grade, I wasn't dealing with uh, paralysis like I was initially. I was able to move and function and everything, but they still treated me different. They were sending me to a special PE class that was for, you know, disabled kids, kids in wheelchairs. There was a kid that had polio, and I didn't see myself that way. I was walking on, on two legs, and still had all my on my limbs, so I was able to at least function. And that didn't last very long. But what it led to was a discovery of scoliosis. They already had found some curvature going on, and eventually that turned into some pretty major back problems. Still some curvature, massive degeneration in my lower back, even more degeneration in my uh, cervical spine, which uh, I just recently had surgery for last year, about a year and a half ago. That I went to the doctor and they discovered that I had the neck of about a 76-year-old man. Uh, it was just, yeah, it was just rotted out. So they had to go in and take off bone spurs off the front and the back from C2 all the way to C7. They put in uh, massive amounts of hardware. Uh, some of the tingling and numbness and burning in my left arm, specifically my good arm, has been reduced, but it's not completely gone. I probably won't ever go away. So that's something that I can I, I deal with today. Back problems I deal with today. No no major headaches or anything, so that's good. But uh, yeah, the 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 back and the arm problems have become uh, quite an issue for me. Kind of nice now that I I mean at this age I kind of I'm not making a lot of money. I'm not hardly making any money actually right now. I was turned down for any disability from the government, so I have to kind of do my own thing. And fortunately, my wife and I are working on a podcast and a website. And, you know, with my limited ability, I can work when when I can, when I don't have to. So uh, my pain, I can kind of manage in that regard. Oh, but, that's great. That's yeah, I mean, you know. You have that flexibility. Yeah, I had to have to do my own thing. You know, I, I started a company. I had a job at a major newspaper here in, in Orange County. And uh, my arm started giving me problems again. I had, by that point, this was probably in 2000. So by, I think my first carpal tunnel surgery was in 1994, which helped a little bit. 
But uh, once I started using my arm again on a regular basis to live my life, all the problems came back again. So they did another carpal tunnel surgery. Then they did a pronator release. Then they get, did some cortisone injections in the, in the neck, and nothing was really taking care of it. Most of it was being caused from this compression in my neck and, and uh, shoulder area. Some of it's taken care of, but I still have pain. I still have issues. So as far as dealing with the pain, you know, I've taken a lot of different things. I, I, like I said, I'm not a big fan of, of taking a lot of uh, prescribed meds. I take one that's an anti-seizure medication because I hate having seizures. But other than that, I don't really take too much. A low-dose aspirin, and, and I'll smoke marijuana. And that helps? Sometimes. You know, in the beginning, it helped more than it, it does now. I think now more for, than anything, it's, it's a nice uh, route or, uh, of escapism for me just because, mm-hmm. I'll be honest, sometimes it's a drag. And I don't want to sound too destitute when I say this, but sometimes it's a drag being me just because of the, you know, infirmaries. It really does mm-hmm. get to be a drag on a person, I think. But yeah. it does, I'm not, I'm not a depressed person. You know, I, don't, I think my wife would back me up on that. I mean, I certainly have my moments like anybody else, but I always seem to be able to kind of re-elevate myself and get myself up to a place where I'm uh, level. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's not. Nice. What do you do to do that, to get yourself level? Oh, gosh. Sometimes it's just as simple as, as just sitting and not using my arm. Because, because I don't have use of my right arm the way that I do on my left, that, that serves as kind of a big uh, – that's a depressing point for me. It really is. And uh, I think I kind of hearken back to, to the little boy that was all, this, you know, all of a sudden made – disabled and can't figure out why but i mean as far as what it does for me it just i maybe trying to get mentally trying to just get into a place where i realize that things aren't as bad as they could be so i balance mm-hmm. myself out that way and and then from the physical standpoint just not using my arm just mm-hmm. you know taking any any pressure off of it the more i mean any small minor movements can affect it sometimes Whereas some bigger movements can't. It's weird. You know, sometimes I, I don't do a whole lot of heavy lifting anymore, but there were times when I could lift something that's 8 to 10 pounds and have no problems. But there were times when I would go to the bathroom and it was excruciating. So, yeah, kind of a weird thing. I mean, it's, and it's yeah. just the way the way it's explained to me is just the, the pressure that I'm putting on certain nerves and certain parts of the arm, shoulder, neck. So... Right, so something big might not have that pressure and something small might have that pressure. And as time goes on, I'm finding it's more about the smaller things that really affect it. Going to the restroom, shaving, brushing my teeth. Uh, you know, I do all the cooking in our house, so cooking is, is has uh, proven to be a challenge. I love to cook, but certain things like chopping, stirring, repetitive motions, oh, my God, forget it. <laughs> it just there- drives me crazy. And those are the things, the repetitive motions, those are the things, small repetitive motions. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's so, really, really odd. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right? There's the rub of it, right? So what's your favorite thing to cook? Oh, my favorite thing? You know, I love cooking Mexican food. I'm only half Mexican, so you think I'd only like it half as much, but I love cooking Mexican food. I, I just love to eat it. I, you know, growing up with it, my, my grandmother was uh, always real, real big on cooking all that stuff, the enchiladas and the tamales and, and tacos, probably my, my three favorite things. I could eat those oh, every day yeah. of the week. My <laughs> wife would kill me if I did that. But, you know, chorizo <laughs> and eggs, oh, my God. Pozole, oh, yeah, I love it all. So <laughs> That sounds delicious. <laughs> oh, it so is. When you sit and rest and sort of do nothing, it sounds, it sounds a little like your own sort of personal form of, like, meditation. Yeah, uh, that was the word. As you were, you know, uh, saying that, or speaking the question, that's exactly what I was thinking. It is a form of meditation. I appreciate it for what it is. There was a time where I would probably fall to that meditation more than was necessary, but I don't do that. I'm, I'm, you know, I had to find a balance, and my balance is: look, you know, you're not dead. If you just sit here, you're just going to rot, and I don't want to rot. 
you know, the frustrations that I've had to go through with all of this from the initial stroke to being turned down by the government that I've actually paid into that won't give me any kind of help, you know, a little taxing sometimes. So, but, you know, like I said, life is sticky and, you know, we're not guaranteed anything and that's why I do what I do with my wife's project and and her website and it, it works out great because I have, I don't have a boss breathing down my back. She understands my situation and we coordinate things in time so we don't miss any important deadlines. So it all seems to work out so far. I'd like to make a little more money if I'm being honest. I mean, I'm a very unreliable employee at this point with my conditions. So I don't foresee anybody, you know, hiring somebody that can't use both hands and needs to just take off time kind of at his uh, discretion. But, uh, you know, we'll get there. Yeah. You know, I have no doubts about you, Scott. You are you're oh, gonna thanks. get there. Yeah. What, what's the name of the podcast? It's called Sensible Chat. It's a budgeting uh, website and podcast. My wife, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, after my second carpal tunnel surgery, I lost use of my hand. I was casted up. I had to wear a, a refrigerator on my arm to keep it, you know, the blood. Cool and inflammation down, all this stuff. Well, anyway, I couldn't do the books anymore. I used to do all the books and shopping and everything else. So my wife had to take on the bookkeeping. She hated it initially, but then, you know, when we were trying to get out of some debt we had amassed, she had a a light bulb moment and became a budgeting geek. She loves it. Go figure, you know. But, uh, you know, more power to her. But she decided she wanted to start a podcast to help people that couldn't quite grasp budgeting because it's really a, kind of a hard thing to get into. Most people will sit there and look and say, yeah, I'm having money problems, but where do I start to to address these? And usually a budget or a spending plan is one of the first steps you need to take before you can get into your bigger issues. And so she felt that's what she wanted to do, so I helped her out, and I produce her podcast and do all the technical aspect of it. I'm kind of a techno geek, so I like that stuff. And, uh, yeah, we're we're just growing. We love it. We're, we've been doing it about a year now, and the hits just keep on coming, and so we're digging it. Downloads are, are growing. Uh, hits to the website are growing, so it's all good. Fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been fun. Thank you. Great. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, you know, you do what makes you happy. Yeah, yeah. Well, if I'm being honest, I mean, budgeting is is not my thing. It really isn't. I mean, I've, I I always kept our books to the point, you know, we were never drowning or anything like that, and everything was paid on time, but it's just not my gig. I am more of a creative guy. Let me sit in front of my computer, fire up my classical music, and I'll write a, a you know, a funny story about budgeting or something, but I don't want to be involved directly with the budgeting, so... <laughs> Yeah, so this is works for you. She does the budgeting, you do the creative stuff. Yeah. This is great. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Everybody's happy. This is yeah. fantastic. This is beautiful. I'm I'm so so happy that that you're in this place. And Thanks. so is there anything else that we haven't touched on? I'm just looking back at my notes. No, you know, I'm still just kind of replaying the question you asked about what advice would I give? To, to a parent with a child like this. You know, I, I don't think there's anything that anybody could say that would make a parent go, oh, okay, you know, now I understand. What you just said, Scott, is going to make it better for me and my family to get through this horrible situation that my child is involved with. I, there's no magic bullet when it comes to that, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly the, the love and, and the support from the family is important. But I, having been a child <laughs> that, that went through the disability, I would just try and, and take the, the kid, put my arm around him or her, and just say, look, you're alive, and you are going to be very special when you get to that point. Hard to see right now, very hard to see right now, but it, you'll get there. And as long as you have all these people around you that are loving you and supporting you, just keep them at the forefront of your mind. They're the ones that are going to get you through all of this because it's going to be hard. I don't believe in, in, you know, blowing sunshine up anybody's 
you know what, because mm-hmm. I don't think that does anybody any good. I'm, I'm not into false hope. I'm not into, uh, you know, uh, kind of esoteric platitudes or something that, that you know, nobody would, would ever even achieve. But mm-hmm. if they have that support, you know, you're, you're going to be okay. You, you are okay. We got through the roughest part. The roughest part was removing the tumor. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, mm-hmm. now it's the healing. And it's just, you know, how, how do you approach that? I, I, I have no magic answers. I wish I did. But mm-hmm. as long, I, I, I feel like maybe I might be taking a little, taken a little more seriously in that vein only because I was the kid that they are at this point. And yeah. so, and my wife tells me that all the time. I should be the one going out and talking to these kids that are going through brain injury and this and that because I survived it. And yeah. I, yeah. I would certainly welcome that. Yeah, you know, I think that wouldn't be a bad thing. I think what you just said is really helpful because it it highlights helping the, the child come out of themselves for a moment and recognize the support they have around them. And right. to, uh, to lean on it, you know, and say, no, this is, sure. these people are here for you and they are supporting right. you and because they love you and they're going right. to help you through this Absolutely. and know that that's happening and that while that's happening, be with that, be in the moment of that. Right. And right. It's, and it's not only the support, yeah. well, not only the support, but, but the reality, I had people that were not completely truthful and and I'm sure that was by design because they didn't want to scare me but I found and I don't ever remember being any other way I found that I appreciate honesty a lot more than platitudes you know I I, I don't need your your faceless meaningless rhetoric if you will just give it to me tell me what I'm looking at tell me what I'm facing tell me what's wrong with me and uh, I've always dealt with things better that way than, you know, kind of being babied or carried. Mm-hmm. Don't so. just tell me everything's going to be fine. Yeah, I think that just comes from the reality that I did deal with something so life-altering, and I knew that there was something wrong. I just didn't understand the severity of it. But I, would, I, I look back, and I think I wish they would have been a little more upfront with me that's just the way I'm wired. I, I appreciate that kind of honesty, brutal or, or otherwise, because now we know what we're dealing with. We're not, there's nothing secretive about this. We know, I know, I know what I have to, what I have to get through. And so I just appreciate that approach much more. Yeah. And I, yeah, and I think, you know, that every kid is going to be different. And so the parents are going to sure. have to decide how they titrate that information. Sure. But I think that's a, helping the child understand what they need to do, what they need to get through, and that they have, like, look at this moment. Like, don't Mm -hmm. worry about the rest of the future. Look at this moment. You have the support. We Mm -hmm. are here for you, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're going to get through this moment. And let's, we'll move on from there. I think that's it. Yeah, exactly. I'm using it now to, as inspiration. I'm trying to write a book. It's it's difficult, uh, but, you know, I'm getting through it. And uh, so... Hopefully, uh, I can come back on about a year or two and, and push a book about the whole thing. <laughs> there you go. We'll be here. We'll be here, ready, ready for you to push the book. That's great. I oh, sure I'm hope excited. so. I'm It'd be interesting. It's kind of a mixture between uh, you know reality and, and uh, fiction. Art it imitates life, so I've had a, I've got a lot to imitate. So <laughs> you had a very full life. It's it's been crazy. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, so. that's for sure. Oh, that's very exciting. Now, I'm. Uh, oh, I wish you all the best in in writing. Oh, writing is, is is it's a job. It's um, cathartic. It, it really yeah. is. I mean, some of the stuff that I'm, yeah. you know, kind of reliving through the pages that I'm putting down. You know, I mean, it's not that I ever I didn't blow it all out of my mind or my memory, but uh, holy cow, when I think back at some of the things, I'm just thinking, ah, I don't know how. Any parent would be able to deal with this, you know? How any family member would be able to deal with a small child going through that. It just, it breaks my heart and I think, my God, if I had children that had to, uh, a child that had to go through the same thing, yeah, I could see how it would <laughs> kind of, it messes with, with families' heads, parents' heads, yeah. you know? It really yeah. does. It really yeah. does. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is. It's it, it's devastating. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting that the writing process too. The way you mentioned yeah. that, we just had dinner with a, a friend who spent a, a good amount of time writing about her life, mm-hmm. not to publish, but just writing about it just for her own well-being. And and she sure. she really ended up, you know, really using that for a lot of her own health. And and it was, it was she said it was. Cathartic to your point. Yes. So yes. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you're doing it. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, served, certainly served to be a um, a bit of, of of kind of self counseling. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm 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 digging it, and I'm getting more and more into it, and uh, yeah, you know, gosh, who knows what's going to come out of it? I, I you know, I, I when I say I'm writing a book, I guess that's just kind of the uh, the uh, capitalist in me, you know, wanting to try and make some money off of my plight, if you will, but uh, probably more to the person you just had dinner with point. It, it's just kind of a, a, a self-edification thing, self-identifying. You mm-hmm. know, you, I, I'm kind of, you know, I learn a, a little bit about myself, you know, because I'm thinking, well, I did this back then, but I would never do that now. So, you know, you, you, some growth certainly is involved with it. But yeah, who, who knows what's going to happen with it? I just want to just continue doing it, and and we'll see where it goes. Right, that self-reflective kind of thing. That exactly. is, you know, a lot of people with brain injury and with pain too. One of the things that they do that people that I've talked to, at least, um, they say that journaling has been one of the one of the most helpful things. And this isn't necessarily what you're doing, but you know, it, it's a kin to it. Pretty close, yeah. Even, yeah. You know, you never know. You never know. I'm just putting it down on paper right now. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I, my, my wife is my biggest fan, so every time I write something, I give it to her, and if she says it's good, I just move on to the next thing. So There you go. There you yeah. go. That's yeah. great. That's great. Yeah. Your wife sounds, she sounds like a fabulous Oh, player. she's amazing. She's amazing. So I can't – we're coming up on our 21 years in April, so I can't even believe wow. we've been married 21 years. I know. Wow. Crazy. That's crazy. She had no idea what she was getting into, so and and and, and I, I don't mean that in a bad way, but you know I was a I was a young guy and I still had some some issues I was dealing with that I didn't realize I was dealing with, and she hung in there with me through all of it so far, and so uh, yeah, I'm I'm crazy about her, and and uh, we have a good life together, so it's all good. Uh, well, that is fantastic. Uh, Thank so, you. I'm so happy for you. Thanks. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Scott. This has really been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you for sharing your story. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity, and I hope I didn't ramble too much. <laughs> and I hope that there was something in there that somebody who may be going through a similar situation can can benefit from. I know there is. I know there is. And Good. We'll, they'll get great use out of it.
Thank you for listening. I'm grateful to my friend for sharing a rich, rich story. I hope that you found value in it. And if you have, please rate this podcast well. Doing so will improve our ranking in search results on all platforms. That makes it easier for other people who may be in need of a little inspiration to find these stories. And here's a massive thank you to the amazing Emily Billibus, who graciously composed and recorded the lovely theme music for Life Over Pain. If you want to find more of her theme music, I've added a link to her music on the show notes. Find more Life Over Pain episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast content.